We share this planet with 8 billion people and 2.2 billion of these people live without access to safe water. So that is more than a quarter of the people on our beautiful small planet don't have access to safe water. Not always, not always safe. And this is a situation that is likely hard to imagine for most listeners to this podcast because we take water for granted. We we use drinking water to flush our toilets and then sometimes we flush it again. And we use phrases like we're wasting money like water. But this is just one small planet. You can fly around it in one or two days and, and you can within a second get connected to people on the other side of this planet. And being more connected has somehow made our planet smaller and it, it should also have led to more awareness of the living conditions of other people. But I wonder if that is something that really happened. Last week was World Water Day and now for nearly 30 years it's being organized every year on the 22nd of March. And it's one day in the year that we focus on the importance of fresh water, but we should focus on it every day. I just mentioned those 2 billion people, 2.2 billion people in the world who are focusing on water every day for the very simple reason that it is so precious for them. And I've worked a lot on water issues in the past and I plan to pay more attention to it in my writings and podcasts for the rest of this year because we are not making enough progress on the six of these 17 global goals. We call it the SDG 6, the Sustainable Development Goal number 6. That is the one that is about water and sanitation for all by 2030. But um, 2030, that is just eight years away. We are not going to make it to give all these 2.2 billion people daily access to fresh water. But um, we have still eight years left and we should get as far as possible. And one of the things where I can contribute to, I believe, is to raise more awareness. So what we will do today is different than the other podcast and the other writings that I plan about water, where I hope to interview experts on one particular aspect. What I want to do today together with uh, Vanessa Champion, who is, who is joining us uh, as co-host every Monday, uh, is to, to explore how wide this theme is. And we will touch upon uh, deliberately a, a wide range as possible of issues, um, including, for instance, what water means for you or what how water makes you feel. And of course, we will talk about the more obvious one, like water shortages. Um, we will also talk about oceans, which is, by the way, not SDG 6, but 14. Um, and anything else that may come up and perhaps there are questions of the people that are listening. And um, so later I will go to those, uh, those, those interviews and I will focus particularly on, on the issues of sanitation and wastewater. But for now, as a bit of an introduction, uh, and we will include, of course, since this is the Green Living podcast, uh, we'll also include this, include this Green Living perspective which uh, which is normally less present in the um, in the series of um, of the planet uh, the other show that I'm that I'm doing on uh, podcast 
on uh, on call in so it's a bit of all sorts today and to start with welcome back to the green living podcast and, um, and welcome back ness um, so did did you follow this year's uh, world water day uh, hi alex yeah nice to be back thank you um yes i did follow it um again this year um it's quite interesting for me because my my father used to work for thames water in london and um, so when I was growing up as a child, I was always fascinated by water quality and how we, you know, overuse water and things. So actually for this um, World Water Day, um, yeah, it was it was really interesting because the central theme was groundwater. Um, and if people want to know what that is, that's the water that's underneath uh, our, our feet, as it were, the sort of naturally occurring groundwater. Um, and it's an issue here in England as well. Uh, I remember reading that wasted water from leaking pipes and also overuse in homes um, is causing damage to rivers and wildlife in England and it's also putting increasing pressure on uh, overstretched supplies. I do remember the warnings here a couple of years ago um, by the Environment Agency and it said that people needed to use less water and obviously companies have to, you know, had to curb leaks to prevent the future water shortages and, and damage as well to rivers and wildlife. Um, I remember there were, there were being um, uh, hosepipe bans and all sorts of things, you know, that some people would, oh, no, you know, it's fine. And some people were not. And there was almost like <laughs> there was almost like a little um, rifts that were going on in, in sort of over over picket fences, as it were, in, in, in England. Um, but, um, but, you know, we've, lots of people who listen to this podcast will know that many sources of water supplies are already overstretched. And, you know, with climate change, we've got a growing population. You know, much of England... Um, could see significant supply shortages, you know, not in the not too distant futures, and certainly by the 2050s, um, and particularly in the southeast. So that's London and Kent and Brighton and sort of south of England. Um, you know, even even looking, um, you know, five years ago, um, I mean, sort of the sort of information I've got here in England, almost 9,500 billion litres of fresh water is abstracted annually. That's a lot. That's enough to cover the whole of Greater London in nearly six metres of water. Just think of that. That's as a whole of Greater London. That's not the central London. This is the, the bigger blob of London that people see on the map. Um, in nearly six metres, they're 20 foot of water. Um, but, act, but there's three billion litres of water are lost through leaks and pipes every day. So that's like, um, that's sort of equivalent to the amount of water used by more than 20 million people in average a day. Um, obviously, large amount of waters are also wasted by households um, where, you know, most people use 140 litres a day. And that's a third of water that was taken, you know, it's, it's sort of a third of water taken from the natural environment is wasted through leaks, uh, treatment losses, and in the home, really. Um, I mean, I do like my shower, but I, I, <laughs> I do, I'm still trying to be in and out as quickly as I can. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean... What do you think, Alex? Yeah, these are these are enormous numbers. So yeah. if, if you think about Greater London, I remember I lived in London for three years in the 1990s. And when I left, after having lived there for, for three years, I uh, I put a huge map of London on, on, on the dining table, the, the real Greater London map. And then I looked at what part of London I had actually seen after having lived there for three years. It was, it was, it was a tiny few centimeters on the map. Uh, it, was, it was basically anywhere between 
let's say uh, uh, Kensington and then Hyde Park and then uh, let's say in in uh, Westminster and then maybe West End. But let's say if you, if you just take that that area, which is still quite wide, if you include all of White Park and and, and Green Park and, and Piccadilly and etc., it was just a fraction of of greater london and only then while i was leaving london and cleaning up which kind of maps i wanted to keep and which ones not which is difficult for a geographer to do uh, then i realized how big it is and <laughs> if you take that enormous area basically anything within the m25 and if you would add uh, six uh, six feet of water did i did you six meters six, of six water meters. so yeah. that is like the, all the way to the top of the second floor in your house um, uh, in European way of counting, uh, since Americans count differently on their floors. Uh, but six meters, that is enormous. And, mm -hmm. and, and all that um, is abstracted annually from, from the groundwater. And that has to be replenished. And a problem that you see worldwide now, and that is why uh, the groundwater gets so much attention. First of all, the problem, as always, with groundwater is that you don't see it. So people are less worried about it. Um, but uh, we, you have these aquifers, those underground storage folds of water, and they are, uh, they are being depleted. And the way to, to solve it is this is a bit like climate change in a way, although in a smaller geographical area. But everybody wants to access the groundwater. But if everybody does and uses it as they please, um, you you deplete those those aquifers like forever. So you see, in countries take uh, take an area like the American Southwest, where people have um, a kind of appetite against governance interference, and they they shout words like freedom, etc. They found out that it's not going to work once there's no more water. You need rules between people on on how you use water. So there's there, and that is a first example, and there's many when you talk about water and on the linkages between water and governance. So you see now in in uh, in an area like let's say Los Angeles, which is for me not uh, the typical example of an area in America where people are really loving government. Their government is very effective and very influential on how people use water. And then that comes back to your host ban example uh, that you, you just gave. Uh, if, if people are going back to the natural kind of gardens that you need to have now in, uh, in, in, in a desert, because they are living in a desert, uh, and you shouldn't have a green lawn outside as if you were living in Wimbledon or something, uh, then people are talking to each other and saying, well, you, you, you shouldn't do that. And then the government is setting rules for it by whether you're allowed to or if you do that, you pay extra tax or it's just uh, completely forbidden. forbidden. And uh, in a place like Tucson, Arizona, where it's just extremely hot, I was there in the cool season and it was extremely hot in the cool season. Um, and uh, a place like Tucson manages to actually uh, let the amount of water in their aquifer increase, even though it's climate change, even though this is southern Arizona um, in, in the lower part, in the valley where it's, where it's so extremely hot. So that is, that is amazing what you can achieve with governance. So this is... 
In exploring the wide, wide range of themes about water, uh, this is clearly one. Water and governance goes hand in hand, and that is also true for um, international governance, because water doesn't just stay in one country. It, it falls in one country, and then the river flows to another country. Um, if the upstream country uses all of it or makes a big dam, you get a problem downstream. So you need also diplomacy uh, between uh, between countries. So uh, back to England, because I'm drifting away in all kinds of directions, which <laughs> I promised we would do here. Um, yeah. So so what what do you think in what do you see happening in in England? Is if 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 uh, people take out too much water of the environment, what what happens? What happens in to the environment? Well, obviously, it's going to harm wildlife, um, including fish and birds, and obviously the, the water. You know, the plants in the water, the aquatic plants. Um, it can also damage wetlands, um, of course. You know, and obviously, all these these are habitats for animals and plants, and you know, to sustain life. Um, when, I, when I had um, years and years ago, I had a had a gallery and a bookshop and I, an art space and I ran arts charities and things. Um, but I also worked with um, people that produced that made baskets for catching eels. You know, it was like a sort of traditional thing that they did. They caught eels um, in the fens. And um, there's all these sort of traditional um, ways of living also that um, were dependent on water and sort of natural aquifers and all this kind of stuff um that's that's been been lost because you know if they and also they, these guys went around and were, were advocating the the value of water the value of the natural sources of water just what you're saying is that if you dam something up one end it has an impact on people further down the line i mean and that's in the uk and that's in england um we often think about you know sort of traditional crafts and all this kind of thing being further away um, but this is happening on our own um, on our own land, really, on our own everywhere, everywhere in the world, really. Um, I mean, obviously, climate change as well as in, as you know is predicted to cause increased river flows as well in the winter um, and uh, decreased flows in the in the summer, of course. Um, and so, if we've got if we've got that going on, that's going to have another impact on wildlife. It will have an impact on on us too, um, and because we're going to have more stagnant water as well, if you can imagine that, sort of during droughts and. And the higher temperature as well is going to lead to, you know, mosquito-borne diseases. Um, you know, I mean, sort of dengue fever and West Nile virus. We kind of, <laughs> just hope not <laughs> over here. But, you know, um, but our popula England's population is growing. Um, it's set to rise to 58.5 million, um, apparently by 2026, which, you know, is, is only four years away. It's only, well, th three and a half years away now, isn't it? Which is obviously going to put more stress on, on water supplies. Um yeah, I mean, if we don't do anything, um, we, we're going to be in the right pickle, <laughs> to be honest. Um, <laughs> and I, I mean, I'm just going back to the sort of stagnant water thing, because um, I mean, not, not only does it smell terrible, but it, it can also um, produce, like, you, you know, like, um, you know, we just mentioned the sort of different diseases and things and, and sort of, you know, sort of the turgid nature of it um, is, is not good. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, even with the low population growth, um, there's going to be um, significant water supply deficits all over. So, um, yeah, I suppose we need to change our attitudes to, to water yeah. use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. certainly. And it, it, there you, you, you touch upon another linkage, which is um, climate change. So I said water is related to government uh, governance and uh, water is also uh, linked to climate change. And 
basically any kind of climate change issue that you're talking about is is related to water. It is really difficult to find an example of a climate change issue that you're dealing with where water doesn't play a role. Mm. And um, so that is that is something that will 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 often come back as well. And <clears throat> looking at situation in England or look at situation in the American Southwest, just two areas that coincidentally we, t we touched upon. In both cases, you see uh, the impact of climate change uh, is having. And it's, it's if you stay <clears throat> with this example in the American Southwest, um, you see that uh, the amount of water reaching the American Southwest and, and it's, it, the main contribution comes from, from the Colorado River, um, is getting less and less. And uh, the Colorado River has two huge aquifers behind the Hoover Dam and, uh, and, and the Page uh, Dam. And, um, and the water behind those dams is getting at record lows. And that is going to have a huge impact also for the electricity provision. But, but mainly the reason that they are there is not so much electricity. It's because they need water in different seasons. So there will be um, a huge distribution question about who has right um, to use water when it becomes a much more precious source is it just can just the richest people still buy water and you don't give it to the poor or should it be for um, should it be equally distributed or should it be uh, should you maybe ban some kind of use of of agriculture for instance should you still grow um, certain, um, uh, let's say, almond nuts uh, in California that use absurd amount of water while California is originally a kind of desert. And should you use all that water to produce almond nuts or should you use it for, for other issues? So it's, it's, uh, it's a climate-related question. It's a governance-related uh, uh, question. Um, and uh, another one that you already touched upon, uh, health is another aspect. So you mentioned dengue fever. There's now, since a couple of years, they have cases of dengue fever in New York. I mean, who would ever have thought about it? I mean, when you first learned about dengue fever, in, in at least for me, well, that was decades and decades ago, that was something like for really warm countries very far away. Uh, from the Western world, so that is that is uh, yeah that is stepping up as well. Um, so yeah, there's just there's just so many so many aspects uh, that that are in there, um, and uh, yeah. So um, you, you another aspect to 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 mention on on water is, um, and that is completely different from let's say the SDGs and the shortages questions, etc. But I think water is also um, a very important element in our psychological well-being. Or let me, let's say, let's put it differently. There's no religion that I can think of in the world where water doesn't play a role. There's like holy rivers or there is uh, water plays a role in all kinds of ceremonies independent of, of what religion you're looking on and mm -hmm. so yes yeah, so I, I i wonder f what's that for you uh, ness are, are you drawn to to waters and rivers and lakes or, or the oceans and 
do you like to be in the water or sitting <laughs> beside water? And, and how do people feel about that? And that, that's, that's more the green living side of our podcast, I would say. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's actually um, from a sort of neuroscience and psychology point of view, it's essential to us. It's essential to our being. I think we're 70% water. And um, when we're babies, I think we're 80% water. Um, if you think about it, we're in the fluid when we're born. We're, we're sort of, it's actually part of us to be, um, to be close to water. Our brains also are, have water in the brain. <laughs> you know, um, there's, we, we're, just, we're just made up of water. And I think that's why, I think probably everybody listening to the podcast, and it'd be interesting to hear their opinion as well, sort of down the line, um, you know, are they drawn to water as well? Do they have the same thing? When I, when I, as I said, I mentioned I had this bookshop and an art gallery and a music space, and, and it was right by an old course of a river in, in Cambridgeshire. And, um, and so my bookshop, so I'd be doing my books and I'd be taking, you know, lugging stuff out the boxes and, you know, getting all sort of flustered because I was lugging stuff. And, and I, I would hear seagulls. And, you know, I was, I, was in, I was in Cambridgeshire. This is not, I'm not by the coast or anything. This is like, you know, um, in flatlands, in the fens. And I, I just would have to go outside um, because I've obviously been working inside on the computer, ordering, you know, speaking to customers, making coffee. <laughs> um, but I would go out and I would stand by the canal, uh, by, the, um, by the riverside, put my arm on the fence, on the wooden fence, and just look out and listen to those seagulls. And I have to say, Sir Alex, um, there's just it was just a, that moment of just um, calmness, regrouping myself. And that was before I did all the research to find out why and how um, it, it's really important to us. I mean, we've it's been proven that being close to water improves performance and it obviously increases calm. It diminishes anxiety. It reduces our cortisol levels, um, which obviously, you know, if we've got too much cortisol, that's our stress hormone. That's our fight and flight hormone. Um, if, and obviously that increases like, you know, um, diabetes risk and, um, you know, high blood pressure and heart attacks and all this sort of stuff. So if we can be in the environment, this is back to the biophilic design, which people have heard me speak about before. But if we bring this, which is, you know, water is an element of biophilic design. It's a pattern of nature that we need in our lives. Um, it reduces, it reduces all this and it helps us live healthier and um, it's better for our well-being all around, really. There was an amazing book. And there, well, I say there was an amazing book. There is an amazing book. It's still in print and it's a fantastic book. Um, and people may know this one as well. But it's by a marine biologist called Wallace J. Nichols. Um, and he talks about the remarkable effects of water um, and on all its shapes and, and forms on our health and well-being. I mean, Alex, you asked me, do I like to be beside it or in it or whatever? I mean, I love being I love being submerged in it. I love I love sort of floating around in it. I love exploring rock pools and listening to the sea. And there's just something beautiful about it. And I just love looking at it and whether it's wild and crazy, massive waves or whether it's just really, really calm and quiet and beautiful, serene. Um, there's a place, again, listeners, you, you, even you, I don't know, Alex, may have been to a place called St Ives in, uh, in Cornwall. It's beautiful. And, and there's, there's a harbour which just like, it's just this, the blue of the sea and the light and the sky is just unique. And that's why a load of artists gravitate down that way. There's, there's a reason for it. But you just go outside of um, there and there's this hail, which is this beautiful three-mile beach. Gorgeous um, seascape, fantastic thing. The sea can be wild and crazy when the wind blows. Amazing sunsets. It's just a phenomenal place. But shed loads of people go there. 
loads and loads of people go and they just gravitate there with their families, old, young, business people. It's just, it's just one of those um, fundamental inherent needs for us to be there. But just sort of circling back on, on Wallace J. Nichols' book, I, I do recommend people to get it. It's called Blue Mind and How Water Makes You Happier, More Connected and Better at What You Do. Um, and this, and he used, he's coined the phrase Blue Mind and that exactly is that sort of mildly meditative state, if you want, when, we, when we're near water. Um, and the sound of it as well, you know, the sound and, and, the, um, and all that. So it's, we, we're in a sort of really overconnected, you know, really overstimulated state every day, on our, you know, whether it's phone calls and emails and texts and stuff. And actually research has proven, and, and there's so much research that's in this book, there's a load of footnotes and stuff, so you can knock yourself out going off and researching all the, all the, all the, all the research documents that he's done. Um, but we, we know that, it's, um, that spending time near water is essential to achieving that, you know, that elevated and sustained happiness. Um, and, and, you know, one of the reasons that people have argued, it could be that the colour blue, um, you know, is, is really good for us. And it could be that, that the blue light, we know, reduces heart rates. Um, uh, and I, there's a, apparently there's a Tokyo railway line um, saw a 74% reduction in suicides as a result of installing blue light. So we know that the blue is good for us. It's good for our mindset, our well-being. Um, but it also, when we're looking at that expansive nature of, of oceans, that, that the rolling tides, you know, it eases us into this sort of meditative state. Um, and it also it sort of puts everything in perspective as well. It makes us think when we're, when we're looking at that repeated pattern as well, you know, we can just let our mind unwind and wander and think. And we actually get a, we get a, a zap of dopamine, actually, when we see um, a little, uh, um, what do you call it, a seagull fly over we get like oh there's something different so we get that little happy drug we get that little sort of hit that you know you get that some not you get well not you get or me get but <laughs> and i'm not assuming that everybody who's listening gets when they have drugs i'm not saying that we have drugs you know what i mean <laughs> um but it's that it's that happy that happy thing that we get when you see a, a, like, a different wave that comes over it's that that variety that um so we, so we know so from a psychology point of view and what's really fascinating in this book as well he examines the brain he looks at how um, different aspects of our brain um, respond differently to the different soundscapes and stimuli in that. It's, it's just absolutely, um, absolutely amazing. Um, I mean, I could quote loads of it. I mean, it talks about our baseline um, and that it's, you know, our baseline happiness is determined by three factors, for instance, you know, genetically determined set point for happiness, spending time in circumstances that make us happy and also about choosing happiness generating activities and practices so and, and actually that this this when we go when we want to do something and we make ourselves do something and we we generate like a an activity that we want to do um our, our happiness level is increased by 40 percent so you talk about do i want to be or do people want to be in in or around water if you're a surfer or you're a swimmer or you make yourself walk by the sea or whatever like that if you kind of if you can combine that as well with like walking your family or your dog as long as it's not doing it repeatedly because then you kind of get overload and then you just you don't the happiness doesn't have the same effect on you but if you can um if you can hope yeah it's true if you can but if you can make yourself if you oh, not make yourself if you can just go go and do it you get this little happy hit sort of thing so oh. anyway <laughs> it's, it's interesting because we mentioned in one of these these earlier uh talks that this study was done about uh spending at least two hours a week in nature is mm. good for you and out of that research came the interesting thing that 
uh, it was important that you had to be in uh, in an area with trees. Mm. Um, but uh, and and I recognized this study as well because I recognized myself. I love to go to the sea and just 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 enjoy the the space and the calmness of the water, etc. So, mm. but uh, there's no trees. So I think those those two researchers should be locked up together in some kind of university <laughs> and, and 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 work this out together because I recognize both. I mean, I love spending time. Uh, in between trees and I love spending uh, time on on a beach as well um, uh, and I yeah I recognize that that gives that kind of of, of calming uh, feeling and it's 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 funny if you look at tourism industry it's I, I just realized while you were talking something that always fascinated me if you if you spend time in some kind of luxury hotel where people go to just to to relax let's say in the south of Spain or something they all have like huge pools with blue water and hardly anybody swims in there. Maybe maybe 1% maximum of all the hotel guests is actually in the water. But none of them would have booked a hotel if there wasn't a swimming pool. And many people make use of it. So you, you might as well just, whatever, put some kind of huge mirror there or just paint it blue and, and, and make some water sounds because they probably wouldn't even notice. Um, so it, 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 I think it's a part of being on holiday seems to be there. There needs to be this, this blue watery element. And it's also, if you, if you're, for instance, in nowadays, people don't go there so much, I think, but let's say if 20 years ago, if you wanted to book a holiday, you went to a travel agency and there you booked a holiday because it was the, the, the pre, internet uh, days and then it normally started with going through these travel brochures and i always noticed that it was an overwhelming color of blue so it seems that they had already in those days worked out that if you put a lot of blue in there people get so relaxed that they then book their uh, their holidays um so um i'm um, i'm not a very much a, a beach holiday goer by the way i mean i love to spend time on the beach on my island uh, but that is uh, often way too cold to really lay in the sun, or you just dip <laughs> in the ocean. You quickly uh, warm up again and uh, and and cycle back home. Yeah, and, I was good. Um, but I, was I, uh, I must yeah. say, I miss the beach. <laughs> yeah. yeah, me too. I mean, you say about that. You know, why why do hotels have blue have have like have um, pools and and things? There's also the 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 um, the quality of the air that comes off around water. I haven't I haven't done all the research and stuff on that, but um, I know there's something about that. It's to do with like the ions or something. It's to do, which also gives us that extra sort of well-being zap that we need too. Um, you know, obviously, you know, hydrotherapy as well. We know um, reduces the psychological stress. So like swimming as well reduces that endorphin thing. You know, it encourages deep breathing, <laughs> um, <laughs> and it kind of leads to that meditative state. Um, but um, yeah, it's just absolutely phenomenal. I think I think we should all we should all go and we should we should have this podcast by the scene. That's what we should have done. We should have like kind of somehow have sort of managed to uh, um, sort of uh, done this by you, well, you. I don't know where you would. We we can do that this summer. We can do podcast <laughs> on location. So wherever <laughs> I'm hanging out, because I'll be I'll be traveling for about four months or so. So wherever I am, we can. Uh, we can do an on-location podcast, and that will sound really relaxed <laughs> with some waves on the background and some seagulls. Maybe we have to wake you up. <laughs> Your turn, <Likely>. Alex. <laughs> uh, 
Um, but surf, I mean, just, you know, sort of going on like what you want to do by the surfing is really good as well, because um, they use that um, sort of water based activity for soldiers and veterans um, suffering with PTSD. So, you know, that sort of combination of physical movement and, you know, learning a new skill as well. Um, and also the blue mind effect can really sort of break that cycle of, of traumatic recall um you know and it helps replace those painful memories with positive ones made on the water um which is great i mean i don't have to have um you know ptsd you can anybody who's had a trauma in their life or you know and everything's relative as well you know some people's traumas might seem really minimal compared to other people's trauma in their life but all of us can be healed by by water um and it's, it's just the sound the smell the the look um the air the air quality the light that's reflected off off water as well um, I think, um, I think it's a, it's a really, it's a really good thing. I mean, actually in a hot shower as well. So, you know, water, um, is good for us if we're just having just in our house, in our home. I mean, obviously most people um, listening to this podcast are from the West, so we all have showers and even, you know, I mean, even if you're not, we can be anywhere really, but you have access to a shower or running water. Um, and you can, you just by standing under it by just having that cascade on you or even standing in the rain. That's the same effect to go and stand in the rain and let the water roll over you and feel feel that feel that on your body, feel it in your hair, get your hair wet and in your skin and um, it's just absolutely phenomenal actually. So uh, <laughs> I lived in an area a couple of years ago where all the houses were built in 1900 and somebody living in that same area I had written a book about the history of all those houses so i i got a copy of the book which was fascinating reading one of the things i learned was that they were built between 1900 and 1910 and that none of these houses had a bathroom in the house i mean there was a, some something working like a toilet either outside of the house or in the house but there wasn't a bathroom as as we know it nowadays so mm -hmm. all of these people must be really grumpy having having missed their uh, access to water and <laughs> including in, well, do you know, in uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah i was going to say actually that was really interesting and i've, I've been doing uh, interviews with people who um study roman roman baths ancient roman baths and so we have this thing called balneology which is like how bathing is really good for us and actually in the victorian period and then also later in london they had the London baths, their bathhouses where people would go and and wash, <laughs> but they would also go and hang out and be around the water. And there was there was a whole community um, spirit that was built up around these um, these bathhouses, you know. And obviously there was all, all coming back from like the Roman period. So, yeah. Sorry, I completely interjected, but that well, was poor, just poor that Queen Victoria. Out. She must have been shocked, <laughs> I think. <laughs> oh, she wasn't all that in flash. it. <laughs> oh, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we 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 could as I started. I mean, there's so many aspects of water. I mean, you could talk about you know people in the world not having access to water to to have enough to drink or for their plants, and then there's all these aspects of let's say the more psychological element of of how people experience water, um, and and yeah. So what I worked on. I mean, this is um, I think this is fascinating, but I never worked on the on the more psychological side of things or the green living side so much of water, which which is in 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 a bit of another field. But I worked very much on on SDG six. So so those uh, for the, for those that are not following it daily, there's um, we decided in two thousand fifteen. 
uh, in the same period that we agreed on um, on uh, on, the, on the climate treaty, on on the Paris uh, Agreement on climate. Um, in about the same time, in those last months of 2015, there were a lot of interesting uh, treaties. And, and uh, another famous one uh, is the agreement uh, between all countries in the world that um, we agreed on an agenda of what needed to happen in the world in the next 15 years, so 2015 all the way to 2030. It's called the Agenda 2030. And... Um, it is divided up in 17 main goals, and then, then, then there's all kinds of details in another total of 169 uh, targets. But those 17 main goals, uh, one of them, number six, is about uh, water, water and sanitation for everybody, for all, as they call it. Um, and a, another one talking about a huge body of water is, is more about oceans, so that is, uh, that is number four, uh, 14. Um, on the list. So I, I worked on, on STG6. I also worked as, as a diplomat on transboundary water uh, problems. How do countries get agreement on, on water uh, when, when it flows from one country to the other, including, by the way, uh, which is quite unexplored, um, is uh, aquifers. What do you do when you have an aquifer, so water underground, that uh, is... Uh, crossing a border so both countries can access access it is it then just the one that pumps out all the water first is the winner and leaves the other one without water well likely that is not the ideal scenario so how do you make a kind of compromise there um, another issue that i worked on is what's what's called the water energy food nexus so the the relationship between water energy and food of course you need water to produce food um Eating food uh, gives you energy, but often you need energy to uh, produce food. And something that most people don't realize is that for practically any form of producing energy, maybe except for solar and wind, uh, you need water. You need water to extract oil or to extract coal or to extract um, gas uh, from the ground. So all these forms of energy they uh, they need an enormous amount of water. So there's all kinds of, of linkages. Sometimes you need energy to get water out of the ground, but sometimes you need water to get energy out of the ground. And all, and all of these are scarce resources. We never have enough energy. We never have enough food. We never have enough water. And at the same time, all three of them, we're wasting a lot as well. We just uh, it's, it's often a third of water. It's often a third of food as well. And we waste a lot of energy by any light that you keep on in a room where you're not in yourself is a waste of energy, you could claim. Um, and uh, and then there's the oceans, of course. I've, I've spoken a lot about oceans and all kinds of, of, of oceans. Somebody wrote on, on Twitter just minutes before we started um, if we could include also uh, microplastics and, and pollution. It was a comment on, on a tweet and... Um, because it, microplastics got a lot of attention in the last week uh, because for the very first time it was detected in human blood. Um, uh, in, in, in about 80% of the people that were tested, they found oh. tiny little uh, particles of plastic. And in this podcast, we've spoken more about plastic pollution. Uh, Tom Gamage was twice in the 
in um, in my podcast in in the planet podcast this is the news i still don't know how to deal with two, these two different shows should i make more or should i make less i still don't know um but uh the 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 risky idea now is that now that they are in your blood uh, that they may stay in your organs and what's going to be the health impact if uh, if plastic stays in 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 your organs and there's a lot that still has to be discovered but research on animals uh, gives gives an, an impression that this is a very serious a issue we should we should uh, focus focus on there's of course and that brings us back to water there's of course plastic and water that's another relationship um the 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 absurd amount of plastics that we are using all over the world um a a, 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 a certain large amount of that ends up in the water and the water ultimately ends up in the ocean and that plastic in the ocean is about 70 percent of that sinks to the bottom of the ocean and about 20 percent stays afloat and and about 10 percent left is, is is somewhere midway and it slowly breaks down but not completely it breaks down into into microplastics and those microplastics now find their way into into the food chain so it's it's everywhere it's actually the air that you are breathing right now wherever you are sitting also contains plastic so you you uh, at the end of a week you have an amount of plastic in your body uh, or or at least uh, brought into your bodies some of it quite a lot of it will also be out as well um, which is which is equal to a credit card. I mentioned that a few times in other podcasts as well. But it's 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 a strong indication of uh, what uh, what we are talking about. So um, yeah, I, I spoke about all those relationships and how rich and wide the subject of of um, of water is. And water and plastic is another one of these these uh, relationships that. Uh, yeah when 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 producing more podcasts about water that is typically one that will uh, more often um, come up um, as well yeah absolutely and uh, you know people are listening as well i mean there's, there's things that we can do to help reduce that in our lives so you know it's saying sort of green living the thing that we can do to minimize that is obviously not buying food that's wrapped in plastic for a start um you know there, there are obviously poisons in you know there's, there's sort of these microplastics everywhere like you mentioned Alex I mean it's scary really that it's in the air but then that's another reason to have lots of plants around you because it helps reduce that in the soil it kind of the soil lots of stuff goes in the soil um, and if you have lots of natural light you know if you, if you can put you know live in the countryside as much as you can and get out into nature at least you can help clean your lungs um, they're probably still there I mean I don't know how about the, the balance and the weight and all this kind of stuff of microplastics I don't know how it sticks to you but um, it's, it's got to make you better if you're outside in nature and you're cleaning your lungs um, as much as you can. And obviously water as well is fantastic. Um, but we don't need to buy food wrapped in plastic. I mean, and, and reduce your consumption of ready meals, for instance. I mean, I, I haven't had a ready meal for ages, for years, actually, because I just don't. And I'm, you know, <laughs> I've said before that I'm this sort of rage. I've always been this raging hippie, but um, it's actually a good thing now. Um uh, and, you know, we, we often, we often we, we're very, you know, sometimes we, we're working really late and we think, oh, you know, we'll just, we'll just get a, get a takeaway, get a, get a little takeout curry meal. I don't know. We have those in England where you go to the supermarket and they've got like everything you need in there and you can, it's, even the naan bread and everything is all wrapped in plastic. And then you get it out and you shove it in the microwave or you put it on the oven and all the black plastic um, 
you know, the food is sitting in the black plastic, you're then cooking it and it's heating it up and it's they've proven that it goes in the food. It's also to do with your non-stick pans. There's elements of the plastic. There's all this stuff is pollution, pollutants and poisons that get into our food. Um, and this whole plastic bag thing, you know, taking, you know, having your, your salad is wrapped in, you know, is, is, is in plastic bags. And, and, you know, how you get away from that is to try and go to farmer's markets if you can, if you're lucky enough to, to live it up, even better still, produce your own, produce as much as you can, because then you're in control of it. You know, obviously you, you can't not have things wrapped in plastic. And if you go to restaurants, everything's wrapped in plastic that they get delivered to them. So it's about reducing. It's about reducing and being in control of the amount of plastics that you want to take into your body um, that you want to have in your life. Um, I mean, you know, there's sort of the whole microplastics situation. I remember remember when I was at school and I remember being with a chemistry teacher and I had an argument with (laughs) with a chemistry teacher. So I must have been, I don't know how old I was, I must have been about 13, 14. I was always having arguments with somebody because I was a complete rebel about the whole thing. Um, and he was talking about um, how plastics obviously come from, um, you know, the petrochemical industry. And I'm like, well, hang on a minute. This is, you know, how, so what's the half, you know, what's, how long do these plastics last? So why are we using them? And he goes, oh, yes, but it's an amazing thing. And it's this, and it's that very old school, you know. And, I'm, and even then I was, I was arguing and, and I had a lot of girlfriends in the, in this, in my girls' girl school, but we, we, we had like this sort of like movement to not use plastics as much as we can. And, and it, you know, and I think that's really good if we can encourage our children in schools that we can educate within schools and after school clubs, if the main curriculum, I mean, that'd be fantastic if the main curriculum incorporated it in it. But um, I think there's a lot we can do uh, green living wise um, that we, we have control over, to be fair. So, yeah, that's um, funny that I remember too from my uh chemistry lessons when at certain moments of chemistry we touched upon plastic and it was just promoted it was amazing it was so durable and uh it was uh, you could you could give it any color and it was it was almost indestructible and those kind of terms were were used and the word environment was just never mentioned so like like you know yeah. none of your problem you just produce and what happens afterwards is uh, so th- luckily that is that is changing we, we still got far to go but at, at least we have uh, we, we have more respect and knowledge about uh, what's going on um i said in the beginning that we would take water so wide today that we we, we would even touch upon oceans uh, which is um an issue that i worked a lot about i spoke a lot about oceans um, and it's something that often comes back in 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 all my social media work but normally i don't associate that so much with with water i mean there's a good reason that uh, of course oceans are made of water but um there's a good reason that these are two different sdgs because um sdg6 is really about the water that we need fresh water that we need for ourselves for drinking we need for agriculture and we need for all kinds of uh, processes the ocean let's say is as as all kinds of different roles all of them are very important as well and of course sometimes it's connected but if you look for instance wastewater which is typically an issue which i think is underrepresented in the attention it gets when you talk about water people uh, look much more at the supply side of water um but you also have to uh, you have to take care of wastewater. There's all kinds of issues there. I mean, it's, it's a humor right that you know your waste is somehow uh, 
uh, uh, uh, you must be able to dispose of your waste as well, but you also have to, to, to clean the wastewater, you have to recycle. There's a lot of issues around wastewater. And uh, there's, there's an increase in demand uh, uh, for better wastewater treatment, and it, it, is, it doesn't get enough attention. So I'm, I'm hoping to, in the years to come, uh, focus particularly on, on sanitation as well as on, um, on, on wastewater. Uh, but talk about the oceans. I mean, if you, uh, Americans always like to express things in money, which, uh, which I think is, is, is a bit silly. But even if you would, you could say that the ocean economy is worth about two and a half trillion dollars. Some people suddenly get woken up when they hear things in numbers. Um, but it's, it should be much more about the, the integrity of our ocean ecosystems. Um, we, it, it is going to be massively changed by climate change. Um, if, uh, if you realize that all uh, the excess heat that we trap on this planet because of the greenhouse gases, uh, it's, it's about nearly all of it. Let's say about 90% of it. I would have to look at the, the latest studies on the numbers, but le let's say about 90% of it is actually absorbed into the oceans. But that ultimately comes with a price because the oceans are getting warmer. And when the oceans are getting warmer, you get all kinds of, of other effects. Um, one is, for instance, that um, the fish in the ocean, they can easily, much easier than animals on land, they can just swim somewhere else. So what you get is that they start to swim away from the equator. So you get less fish in the equator area and fish are moving on the northern hemisphere northwards and the opposite way, of course, southwards uh, on the southern hemisphere. And they are entering the areas where other fish already are and some fish are more uh, sensitive to uh, water temperature changes than others. So complete ecosystems are going to change. And that also means if you would make your living from fishing and you live close to the equator, you've got a problem because the fish are, um, are moving away from there. And um, it's also that if oceans get warmer, uh, of course, you see uh, more uh, melting of uh, melting of the sea ice, but it also impacts uh, the weather um, uh, close by on land and further and further away, actually. So that also leads to more melting of uh, of land ice, and the land ice melting is, of course, the part that contributes to the rising of sea levels, and the sea levels also rise because anything that gets warmer expands. So even without the additional water coming in by uh, by by uh, by the thawing of, of of snow and ice, um, warmer oceans expand, and that also leads to sea level rise, which has enormous uh, enormous impact. Um, and it also changes the weather patterns, so that you see now, for instance, in um, in the southeast of the U.S., that the hurricanes are becoming more forceful or you see it for instance um, with the uh, typhoons in um, uh, in the philippines that more frequent they see especially more forceful um, monster hurricanes so they had i think in the past five years or so they had like three hurricanes or typhoons as you call them in that area of the world um, that uh, that are uh, defined as a once in a hundred year typhoon, but they have them practically all the time now. 
um, so um, yeah, so so climate change. When we talk about the oceans, there's a lot of pollution aspects. We already spoke about plastic, which is probably the first one you think of when when you think about uh, pollution in the in the oceans. Every single minute, a full truckload of plastic uh, enters the ocean, um, and then there's overfishing. Uh, for mm. instance, uh, the famous Cape Cod, you know, and where 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 the Kennedys live. Um, uh, there's no cod to be found anymore. It was named Cape Cod because the first thing that people associated with that area of the world is that it was so easy to fish cod there. There's not one to be found anymore. They're just they're just gone. So overfishing is uh, is another um, issue. Yeah, exactly. I think. Um, I mean, you mentioned about you know ninety percent of the excess heat, and that is you know the climate system is absorbed by the seas, and there's also thirty percent of human-generated carbon dioxide e emissions is absorbed by the sea. Um, I mean, I, I mean it's, it's lovely listening to you, Alex, because you know so much about this. And, I, you know, there's loads of things I could ask you about it, actually, you know, and, and, and uh, maybe I'll, I'll grill you um, <laughs> another time on it. But um, I, do, I do find it, um, I, I just, I don't know, sometimes it, it just, you, you want to shake somebody, don't you? You want to shake the people who are responsible um, for the over overfishing and for i mean you, you mentioned as well which i i because you don't you don't think about it unless you actually really process it but of course as the seas heat up or get cold or, or whatever it is or the, the environment changes of course the fish can move the fish can just swim along <laughs> you know it's like you say it's not like on a landmass or whatever where you know there's like they might have a barrier of a river or have mountains or whatever so they can't move or you know whatever it is um or just boundaries you know just human generated fences and boundaries so they can't can't migrate and move but but fish can move which then obviously will have an, another impact on the rest of the ecosystem that are dependent on the fish being there so so then it has a knock-on effect doesn't it of like the other things that are growing that shouldn't be there and predators and movement and so um yeah i mean it's um it's it's very very um it's frustrating but um you know i think there are things that we can do um individually a lot of them obviously are you know um lobbying our politicians um and the sustainable goals um as well um advocating those and there's loads of information on on the on the on the website on the un sustainable development goals website um that people can go to download you know all the assets and stuff get talking about it learn about it find out about it and be citizen citizen um uh, voice citizen voices for for our seas and our oceans and our and our waterways and rivers and 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 obviously one of the best things to do is if if yourself you know if you've got a love of you know the seas maybe you're a scuba diver or maybe you're a you know um you know you just you just maybe you're a painter you have and, and you love painting the rivers and things you know find the thing that you love find the thing that really calls to your heart and do something you know, use that passion, use that love, use that understanding um, to to share with other people and get them get them excited about it. Because if you've got passion about it, people are going to go, oh, I want to know, too. I'm going to go and I'm going to go come and support you. Um, there's cleanup stuff you can do on the beaches. I mean, you talk about microplastics. There's all these amazing things that people are repurposing them, making flower pots with them and, and things. You know, there's um, there's people down in, in Cornwall that are doing it and creating these beautiful, bright coloured, bonkers coloured 
plastics because obviously there's a lot of red of bonkers coloured plastics that have been injected with bonkers colours. Um, so you can have bonkers colours on your <laughs> on your patio. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think that's one of the things about art. I think art and the environment and environmental messaging is really interesting conversation to have anyway. How our creatives, how poets and writers and, and, and sculptors and, and designers, um, artisans can club together to create something to repurpose something to go look look you know you don't have to throw it away you can do something else with it yeah. and also to highlight the fact that it's it's still in existence you know that it's that it's not gonna um it's never gonna go yeah. away um you know. I, I actually have an uh, a twitter account about it most people know my my own twitter account or they know uh, planetary security the other account that i'm running but there's a third one and um which is um called art for our planet and although it has only about 4,000 followers, it is in that field one of the biggest uh, that is around, which is specifically about um, art and environment. And it, it was the, the, the startup of a much bigger project that I wanted to work on, but I was just, I was just getting drowned in the number of initiatives that I was involved <laughs> in. So it's, 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 a bit of, it's a bit on the background. I still want to, to develop it further because it's such a, a beautiful, rich issue because I both love uh, art and environment. So I, I really love that, uh, um, uh, that combination. And um, it's it's also funny what you just said about uh, these uh, these fish moving uh, moving in the water and that on land that is difficult. But the question was asked to a number of scientists on what um, uh, the way they formulated this. Suppose uh, an average person in the world living somewhere on land, of course, if that person wants to stay in exactly the same climate zone. How much would that person have to move away from the equator every day <clears throat> to stay in the same climate? And of course, there's if you, if you if you live in one place, it's different than somewhere else. So they they came to a kind of average. So these scientists uh, worked on it, and the conclusion was ten meters every day. So every single day, you and me and everybody else should, on average, walk ten meters to the north, or if you're in the southern hemisphere. 10 meters in the direction of Antarctica to keep living in in uh, in the same climate. And of course, this nonsense, nobody's going to move 10 meters every day. It's practically quite impractical. Um, but it gives an impression of the speed of climate change. Imagine everybody in the whole scary. world would have to move 10 meters uh, every day. Yeah, that's incredibly and, uh, scary. Actually. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a scary thought. Huh? It's it's yeah. so fast. It's so far. I mean, after after just you know after ten days, it's already hundred meters, etc. Mm. So mm. that uh, the coast fast. And then one more thing you mentioned on the uh, not only the heat absorption of the ocean, but also the um, ab absorption of CO two itself. So not the heat, but of the main uh, greenhouse gas. Of course, we are really lucky that about thirty percent of uh, the CO two that we are pr producing is absorbed in the ocean and is not ending up uh, in in the atmosphere and working as a greenhouse gas. But again, there's a price to be paid because when you put CO2 in water, you do the same as when you produce, let's say, a soda drink, which is really nice and bubbly. And it gives this, this fresh taste. That's why we like it. And what is the fresh taste? Well, it's actually because it has become more acid. 
And Coca-Cola is so acid that they throw a lot of sugar in it as well. I can talk a lot of reasons why you shouldn't drink Coca-Cola, by the way, but there's just one or two of them. But um, in um, uh, so if you put CO2 into water, what you get is that it becomes more acid. Now, um, but what do you use acid for? If you're cleaning the bathroom and you find some some chalk uh, around a water faucet, what you do is you take we call it azijn in Dutch. It's called raisin. What is it called? This the thing you you put in in when you make a salad. You throw in some oil and you throw in what's the other vinegar. thing? Vinegar. 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 That's the word I couldn't think of. So use vinegar to to clean that chalk away. So chalk is being dissolved in acid. So now imagine you are a seashell. You're made of chalk and you live in the ocean. And then because of us burning all these fossil fuels all this CO2, carbon dioxide, is ending up in the ocean and the ocean becomes more acid. So your chalk protection, your 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 skeleton, your your outside protection of being a, a shell or a snail or all kinds of other ocean animals is slowly being dissolved in this more uh, acid water. And that doesn't go overnight, but of course it goes very slowly. You can imagine how it, it hampers sea life if it gets uh, more acid and one place where you really see that uh, the the first one where you massively see it is uh, the coral reefs uh, so uh, the coral reefs are 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 made out of out of chalk if that is the right uh, english word that i'm using here imagine just realize i'm translating literally every word right my, my language is dutch so <laughs> Today I had two words that I'm not really sure about, but I spoke many more, I guess. But um, the coral reefs are really in trouble. And um, the the biggest, the most fascinating, the most beautiful that we have on the planet is the Great Barrier Reef that is that is just east of um, of of Australia, east and northeast, I should I should say. And the latest reports of the Great Barrier Reef are really, really negative. And uh, although the, the acidification of the ocean is, is, is part of it, the main reason uh, for the problems there is the heating. So the first element we, we spoke about of, of the, the, the heat that is, is entering the ocean. And that leads to coral bleaching. And there's a very recent report uh, that, uh, that came out that there is now a new bleaching event in the Great Barrier Reef. And that is really, really sad news that doesn't get enough attention because we have so much sad news on the front pages of, of the news um, every day uh, that, that many people will, will have missed this. But we, we talk about a marine park which is um, uh, 1,400 miles long. And there's now scientists from the United Nations that are in, in Queensland, so Northeast Australia, that are examining the condition of the reef. And, and they're also seeing whether enough is, is being done to, to, to protect this fantastic ecosystem. And um, this is now the fourth time in just six years that the Great Barrier Reef is being impacted by bleaching. And uh, so, so this bleaching is what happens when coral gets stressed, when it gets warmer. And what then happens is that uh, they, they expel the, the green algae that gives them color. 
and what what's then left is the white skeleton so that's why it's called this uh, this bleaching and an extra reason why scientists are now so uh, concerned about this bleaching is that it took place during a La Nina which is uh, a weather system uh, it is the opposite of the El Nino. La Nina is a weather system which normally creates cooler temperatures. So it's cooler than normal, and still we see a bleaching event. And as far as I know, this is the very first time that we see a massive coral bleaching in uh, during a La Nina period, which seems to be that we we entered another chapter of of uh, of global heating, and. Um, this, this bleaching does not automatically cause the coral to die, um, but what happens is that it makes them much more vulnerable to, uh, to diseases and they are less able to, to, to spawn. So, it's, it's, it, so ultimately, this, this is uh, threatening them. If it's a short period, they can normally uh, get, uh, get back uh, after this. Um, so, yeah, so, so scientists warn that uh, warn that if if these ocean higher ocean temperatures continue, these uh, bleaching events will become more frequent. I see that we have a question, and we've been talking quite a long time. So um, let's, uh, if you agree, shall we shall yeah. we go to to Joshua? Hi, Joshua. Um, I've been on the call uh, with the UK talking about military spending, so getting over to this call is uh, kind of a breath of fresh air in some ways. Um, but I, I wanted to talk a little bit about on the upside, positive side, about adding uh, arts to the STEM education. So science, technology, engineering, and math, but they're also now extending it to arts more. And I think we should really support that. Um, I want you guys to talk a little bit, if you can, about regenerative agriculture versus sustainable agriculture so that we can start looking at how we repurpose and retrofit and reuse the things we have is a, and also invest in regenerative green technologies. And I will drop hemp here. I have talked with people um, in last week about building rockets out of hemp. So and I have valid resources and sources for my thinking on that. But, you know, it is not my only hill that I will die on. The hill I will die on is a, is a climate activist. And that's why I keep bringing up these things as opposed to us continuing to try and sustain this war culture, which I directly tie to climate change. Yeah, so th thank you, Joshua. I, somehow I knew, I don't know why, but somehow I... I felt that you were going to bring up hemp, and um, uh, but th this is a new element: bringing building rockets out of hemp, which is which is amazing because the way that I know hemp is that these kind of cheap bags where you where you where you keep your stuff in those are hemp uh, bags. Um, never saw that you could make rockets out of them. That is that is amazing. But I I am fully with you on uh, on on the importance of uh, yeah being more. Uh, regenerative. Uh, ultimately, I think we should just go to um, to a uh, to a circular economy that uh, not only just you know when we have old stuff, whatever you talk about, any kind of production, it doesn't it doesn't have to be in 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 agriculture, but basically anything that let's say you find in your house, whether it's in in your fridge or in your wastebasket or anything, um, it's not only that you should try to recycle it, but I think we 
should go towards an economy where we design things um, knowing already that uh, they temporarily fulfill a function and afterwards uh, they will fulfill another function. So that can either be that you kind of repair it and use it again, or it can be that you um, that you remake it into something else, or that you that you recycle it, but that you repurpose it. And I I believe that we we should really move to a completely different kind of 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 economy. And l let me give you a good example. I um, I was a couple of years ago. I um, uh, I was invited in uh, Hong Kong to uh, speak there for um, a, a huge audience uh, together with the the Minister of Environment, but they're not allowed to be called Minister because Hong Kong is not an independent country, so I, they had another title for the guy. Uh, but actually, the, <laughs> the two of us were, were keynote speakers there. And I I started, I was, I was looking for a good opening, and uh, I got it while I was at Schiphol Airport uh, on my way to Hong Kong. So I felt the time pressure of finding a catchy opening. And I was there in Lounge 2 of Schiphol, which I still believe is one of the most... It's, it's Amsterdam Airport. It's one of the most beautiful and best-functioning airports in the world. Uh, people that travel quite a bit will, will maybe agree with me. Um, but uh, in, in the new Lounge 2, uh, they had introduced new lighting. So um, the way it was before was that uh, the guy responsible at the airport for the lights um, bought, like anybody else, bought uh, their light bulbs or whatever form of lighting uh, they used and uh, put it in and tried to use uh, not too much of it to, to save energy, which is basically a good policy, which is likely what um, any of our listeners is doing at home. But what they changed in... Uh, cooperation with Philips, the, the famous uh, lighting uh, company uh, from, from the Netherlands, is a completely different concept. Instead of the product light bulbs, they um, changed the whole system towards the surface of providing light. So no longer a product, but a surface. So how it changed was that uh, Schiphol Airport made a contract with um, Philips that Philips would provide the surface lights and has the complete responsibility for that surface. So what then happened is, is really interesting. So Philips, being responsible for providing light, uh, first of all moved to change all the lights to their really newest and best type that they had, which are uh, more, uh, uh, what do you say, long living, more, more, uh, they, 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 they function longer, uh, they use less energy, uh, provide more light, because it was in their own interest to do that as efficiently as possible. And then, if these things break down, Philips has produced them in such a way that uh, they can easily be repaired, and if they break down, what ultimately happens in a way that you can't repair them any, any, anymore, they can be taken apart and uh, all the elements can again be used. So what happened is that uh, by these changes, the amount of energy used was quickly reduced by, by more than half. 
um, it was in uh, the way the contract was formulated, it was in the interest of Philips that all the lights were working all the time. So instead of like in any, if you go to your supermarket and you look around, you will see that about five or 10% of the lights in your supermarket are not functioning because someday somebody's going to repair them. But Philips took care that all the lights are functioning always. So you get a better surface, you get better light, it is cheaper and it is better for the environment. And that is an example of the kind of, um, the kind of changes we should make in all aspects of our lives, in, in, in the cars that we drive, in the, in the food that we produce, in the food that we, that we use. And we can, in, in that sense, make a planet that is, uh, that is healthier and that is uh, with less stress on, on the environment and that ultimately also, also better for us and better for our economy and better for our welfare. So, um, yeah, just one example. What, what do you think, Ness? I think that's such a brilliant idea. I didn't realise that. I do know about um, Amsterdam Airport, and you, you're right. It is a, a phenomenal, functioning, um, quite a beautiful airport, actually. Um, but that's such a good idea, isn't it? To put the onus of the environment on the manufacturer, to have them... I, li I like the idea of that, to call it actually the service of providing light. Imagine if we did that in the service of providing energy, of providing heat. If we did that... Did, they would have to, they would, because obviously they would want to save money as well, so it's in their economic interest to provide a better service. Um, what, what a brilliant idea. I was also thinking when you were talking um, about sort of circular economy and things, there was, I remember reading about these drones that were sent up to um, really remote places, um, you know, inaccessible places in, in sort of developing countries and to, to, to take medical care. But those drones, obviously, once they were taken up there, you know, how do you, how do you get them back? And they, they were actually they left them there. Obviously, about it's about the energy as well. You know, obviously, by the time they've got them from A to B, um, but they you know they could actually um, take a you know it was like there was a wheel on there and a, and all different aspects that they could then repurpose into the into their life into their into their environment. Um, and I think as well, you think about like older quality products that we had, even our old um, you know old cars and, and old motorbikes and all this kind of stuff and bicycles. I mean, like you said, I've done, I've done loads of work in Africa and India and, and everywhere you go, they're always fixing everything. It's fantastic. You've got a different mindset. It's like, well, you know, you know, just because it's broken, we don't just chuck it away. There's actually, you know, there's a whole bunch of people that learn off their families and off their dads, like we like we all used to do. I mean, I, I remember sitting with my father learning how to change spark plugs in the car and all this sort of stuff, you know, just because instead of just going, oh, well, I don't know how to do it, I think... Um, it comes back as well to like the disconnect that we have with the product that we have, like even our cars, to be fair, as well. It's all electronic. We need to open up the lid and, and we, we need a you know, computer to make it. Whereas before, we, you know, when I had my little Austin, when something fell apart, I would use tape <laughs> or string to hold it in yeah. there, you know, so but I could actually be in control of it yeah. with, rather than having to use another thing that's, that's called, that's, that produces it, you know, that, that needs energy like a, a computer to fix the car it's crazy yeah. i think it's you know anyway yeah exactly i see another question coming up um evelyn hi evelyn you're still muted evelyn it's the bottom bottom right you must know it <laughs> i think it's not working somehow no. um no Evelyn is no, somehow. While she's, while she's thinking, um, I also wanted to um, just add something to what Joshua asked about or suggested about the STEM 
subject yeah. and about bringing art. And I, I, I love. I'm going to have to go and look at your um, your um, your other feed. What's it called? Art for our art planet. Art for our planet. Just because the reason that somebody else had stolen the art for the planet and then never used that account, but <laughs> couldn't get it anyway. <laughs> so maybe our, our, our planet. planet. It's but not our planet. We share this planet. Oh, yeah. Evelyn is back. And then let's yeah. let's briefly try it one more time. And if not, we go back to the art. Evelyn, can you unmute yourself? Yeah, there you are. Yeah. See, this is why I need a new phone. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but recycle the old one, right? <laughs> I will. They give me money back if I do, so that's a good deal. <laughs> okay. Well, sorry. You can continue on on art real quick if you want. No, no. Please, uh, please come okay. in with your your question. Okay, I have like uh, five pages worth of notes, but I'm just going to hit a few, don't worry. Um, love St. Ives, totally agree with you, Vanessa. It's it's like such a cool place to go, and I, I loved it there. I think we spent like a week down in down in Cornwall at some point. Beautiful. Uh, Devon and Cornwall it was, I think. And... Um, Thanks for the book recommendation. It's not like I need more books, but that's that's definitely one I need to get. Um, then you asked pretty early on, I think I was still on the train, um, about whether we were drawn to water. Um, most definitely. I mean, this past week, I walked along the Rhine for between nine and 10 hours. And I spent a total of like 12 to 14 hours out there, but those were breaks as well and what I loved was like the combination of tree and trees and water because in well not most places but in some of the places the trees go up right to the water and so you basically walk in the forest but by the water which is amazing so I love that um, from my own experience water definitely good to heal trauma that I can definitely attest to that and or to help heal trauma, I should say. And um, I'm also drawn to water around here, uh, just purely out of laziness, really, because when I go cycling, the water is down in the well in the valley, so I don't have to go um, bike up in the hills. Mm -hmm. So it's basically, yeah. Wherever the water is, it's sort of reasonably flat, with lakes and um, and streams. So that Lovely. too. Then what else was I going to say? Oh yeah, um, Vanessa, you said something about like finding finding a pa something you're passionate about, and it was yeah. actually um, a podcast that Tom was on on plastic that sparked something in me and I'm actually going to start my own podcast as soon as I have my new phone <laughs> so this could be soon-ish and well there was some um there was something also on hydroelectric power that I was going to mention because about 70 percent of electricity in Switzerland is like hydroelectric uh, electric power and I walked past quite a few of those power um plants on along the river and that's also a fascinating topic that um i don't know i grew up with it because we have one right here and um that's why water is really important in the area i live because we we use it for for a lot of things and we're sending it downstream clean i took some pictures to prove that 
if it's if it ends up in the Netherlands dirty, it's not us. It's all clean when it leaves here. <laughs> oh, that is that is really good to hear. Um, and uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's actually a famous case of the bus F uh, factories. Uh, in, in Switzerland that triggered the whole idea about uh, who's responsible for cleaning uh, the Rhine River. And since then, that is like 40 years ago or so. And since then, I think all the Rhine Rivers made a, made a huge um, a huge progress, and uh, which is ultimately to the benefit of the Netherlands because we are the downstream country receiving everything. Thanks for, for those comments, uh, Evelyn. I, I promised Ness that we would do a really short one because uh, she had uh, an agenda full of appointments and now we are already at something like, well, certainly more than an hour. Um, so... Um, I think the best thing we can say is that we'll be back uh, in a week um, uh, again on Monday, uh, same time. Um, if we define uh, our topic as wide as today, we can really cover everything. We even drifted away <laughs> from water um, towards the end. So we went in, in all directions today, but I, I, I hope that you enjoyed it. So... Um, uh, yeah, Ness, thanks so much for, for joining. Looking forward to uh, to see you next week again. Um, thank you for the live audience and also thank you for all the people uh, that are listening to this podcast later on. And, um, and uh, thank you for um, uh, Joshua and Evelyn for, um, for asking uh, questions. Hope to see you again. By the way, I'm back here on uh, next uh, Wednesday as well as on Thursday. Uh, and, uh, and likely as usual uh, in the weekend as well. So hope to uh, to see you all back uh, back again soon. Thanks so much. Bye guys.